Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. While back, I did a story about those uh, hospital workers who were ordered by a court to not leave their jobs despite the fact it was an at-will employment situation. And I mentioned that temporary restraining orders are difficult to get. They involve a lot of work. And I said, I've gotten one before, and I can tell you all about it. Just remind me somewhere down the road. Well, Jason sent me a note and said, Steve, just reminding you. (laughs) So here we are. It's going to be a long video. I apologize. Now, if you don't like long videos, switch away right now. Because I got a TRO a while back, and it went up on appeal to the Michigan Court of Appeals. And I won that appeal, so I'm happy about that. But I can tell you why we got a TRO and why they're so complicated. So first, let me tell you the story about what happened. And this is directly from the case report from the Court of Appeals. The facts of this case are essentially undisputed. In 1987, plaintiff, my client, sold defendant a 1968 Chevrolet Corvette for $3,500. Plaintiff is listed as the first secured party on defendant's application to the Secretary of State for Certificate of Title, which was signed by defendant. Purchase price of the vehicle was listed on the title transfer application as $500. Case curious what happened here. My client agreed to sell the car to the guy. He had the title. Guy said, I'll pay you $3,500. But I haven't got it now. My client goes, fine. I'm going to put my name on the title as lien holder. My client filled out the back listing himself as the lien holder, and he signed all the stuff necessary. And the guy turned this thing into the Secretary of State's office to apply for a title. When he got the title, it showed my client as the lien holder. But somewhere along the line, it got listed as a sale price of $500. And I've mentioned before, people do that to reduce a sales tax. And to be honest with you, this is a long time ago. I don't know who made that decision to write 500 instead of 3,500. It actually does play in a little bit to the story, but it's not that important. The parties agreed that defendant would pay plaintiff in installments without interest. Defendant made sporadic payments of $100 to plaintiff until 1989, by which time defendant had paid a total of $1,100. So the purchase price, 3,500, paid 1,100. He then failed to make additional payments and plaintiff said, well, I want the vehicle back. According to plaintiff, defendant refused to return the vehicle and refused to pay the $2,400. Defendant asserts, however, he has offered to pay the entire amount from the beginning of the dispute and opposes only repossession of the vehicle. That is a strange assertion to make because somebody could have come into court at the one hearing on this case with a check for $2,400 made out to my client and said, Your Honor, here is a check. We're offering it to him and see if we refuse to take it. They didn't do that. So, plaintiff filed a lawsuit on January 21st, 1993, and I'll editorialize here, where his attorney came into court with a pile of paperwork, quite complicated and convoluted, and got a temporary restraining order. I'll get to that in a second. Plaintiff argues that the application for certificate of title constitutes a security agreement for purposes of Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code. I've mentioned before that I have a reported case on Article 9 of the UCC. It's the most obscure article. It involves secured transactions. I don't know a lot about it other than what I learned working on this case. The trial court agreed that uh, plaintiff had a valid security agreement. However, the court then ruled that because the listed price in the vehicle is $500, defendant's security interest was only for that amount. The trial court then concluded that because defendant had already made more than $500 in payments for the car, Plaintiff's security interest was extinguished. Accordingly, the trial court entered a money judgment for plaintiff in the amount of $2,400, but ordered plaintiff to execute a release of his security interest on the title of the vehicle. So 
We file the complaint with those facts. My guy gives them a car. They give my client some money, but not all. They stop making payments, refuse to make payments, but we've got a security interest in the car. So he'll give us the car back. And they go, no. So we file the lawsuit along with a temporary restraining order that says they cannot sell the car until we figure out what's happening here. And when they come into court, they go, well, we've already paid $1,100 um, and the car only cost $500, despite the fact that my client had another document that was a record of the payments that they acknowledged was accurate. So plaintiff argues that the trial court made a mistake in ruling that his security interest in the Corvette was discharged and that plaintiff is not entitled to return the vehicle. So that's our position. We essentially contended that the trial court made a mistake in relying upon defendant's false representation of the purchase price. In response, defendant argues that plaintiff failed to establish any enforceable security interest at all because the title application is insufficient to constitute the type of written security agreement required by Article 9. Article 9 says that you can get a security interest in something by creating certain kinds of paperwork. And the question is, is the paperwork we had sufficient to create that interest? The necessary components of a security agreement under the UCC are minimal. Article 9 defines a security agreement as an agreement which creates or provides for security interest, which is essentially a statute of frauds. It provides that a security interest is not enforceable against a debtor and does not attach unless the secured party retains possession of the collateral or, or, the agreement is in writing, signed by the debtor, and contains a description of the collateral. And guess what? A title application is in writing, signed by the debtor, and contains a description of the collateral. It's all a title does to describe the collateral. So the question presented then is whether the vehicle title application was sufficient to create a security interest in the Corvette. And the courts point out that it's gone both ways. But here's the deal. Under Michigan law, agreement means the bargain of the parties, in fact, as found in their language or by implication from other circumstances, including a course of dealing or usage of trade or course of performance as provided in this act, which is the UCC. The Supreme Court has recognized that although a signed writing describing the collateral is required, the other requirements of an agreement may be established by parole, evidence of course of dealings, usage of trade, or course of performance. The application for a certificate of title showed unequivocally that plaintiff was to have a security interest in the Corvette. Thus, we conclude that the title application constituted a security agreement that gave plaintiff a security interest in the vehicle. However, while we hold that the trial court correctly concluded that defendant's title certificate was sufficient evidence of the agreement for purposes of Article 9, we find that the trial court made a mistake in ruling that plaintiff's security interest is necessarily limited to $500 because the parties agree it was $3,500. I'm going to tell you right now, I got hometowned in this court. This court was up in Port Huron, Michigan. And so I went up to Port Huron and at the hearing, the judge and the defense attorney were like buddies. They, hey, how you doing? My opponent showed up in court not wearing a tie. He's wearing dockers and like loafers. And he walks into court and goes, hey, your honor, sorry about not wearing a tie. I just got off the boat. Hey, how's the boat? They walk up the bench. They're like talking, giving each other noogies and stuff. And, and it was so obvious that they're buddies. And so then finally the judge rules in his favor and basically says, no, none of this. Da, 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 da. And, and the, so the court of appeals is now pointing out that the court screwed up when they told 
You know, when, when, when the court said, oh, well, there's security interest, but the car only cost 500 bucks. Court screwed up on that, but they screwed up on that in favor of Mr. No Tie wearing the dockers in court. So at most, the representation on the application that the purchase price was $500 creates only a question of fact concerning the intended scope of the security interest, not a conclusive statement of the amount of security involved. However, furthermore, even if it were established that plaintiff's security interest is limited to $500, we reject the trial court's conclusion that defendant's initial payment of $1,100 in the debt necessarily discharges the security interest. It could be argued that defendant's $1,100 in payments were made on the $3,000 of unsecured debt, and none of the $500 of secured debt has yet been paid. So this interpretation seems more consistent with the party's actual course of conduct, as apparently neither party sought the removal of plaintiff's lien on the title once the $500 of the debt had been paid. So if that guy really thought the $500 paid off the security interest, he would have called up my guy and said, hey, I paid you the 500 bucks. Remove your name from my title. Plaintiff also argues he's entitled to repossession of the vehicle pursuant to the UCC, which states that unless otherwise agreed, a secured party has a default the right to take possession of the collateral. Because we find that the trial court erred in holding that plaintiff's security interest had been extinguished and that a question of fact does exist as the extent of plaintiff's interest, we direct the trial court to address this issue on remand. We note that if plaintiff is entitled to repossession of the Corvette and he elects to retain it, he must provide written notice to defendant. The defendant will then have 21 days to object. And they point out what you do in Article 9 if you repossess someone's vehicle. So I understand that. Defendant argues that because he made significant improvements to the Corvette, including repainting it, rebuilding the engine, or replacing the interior, the vehicle is now worth considerably more than $3,500. Well, that's tough. Because that just simply means the collateral goes up in value. And if my client was forced to sell it, he'd get more for it. You're more likely to get some money as well, the surplus. But the simple point is that my client put his name on the title to that car. That was registered with the state. My client was shown as the lien holder. The guy stopped making payments. And there came a time when he said, I'm not paying you any more money. And my client became concerned that the guy might try to sell the car. You might say, Steve, how can he sell the car if the plaintiff's name is on the title as lien holder. Well, for one thing, he could decide to sell it for parts because the parts are worth more than 3500 bucks. So I decided, after talking to my client, I said, do you want me to stop him from selling the car when we file the lawsuit? And my client said, can you? And I said, I'm going to try. And so what you do there is you get a temporary restraining order and then you ask for an injunction to last during the pendency of the lawsuit so that the car doesn't get disposed of until we settle these legal issues. So here's the problem. The court is in Port Huron. My office at the time was in West Bloomfield, I believe. Maybe in Bloomfield Hills. It's been so long, I forgot which of the Bloomfields I was in. <laughs> it's a while ago. Guys in my office, I say, okay, we're going to file a lawsuit. The lawsuit's easy. I draft a complaint. A lawsuit's a complaint. I draft a complaint. But here's the problem. To get a temporary restraining order, I've got to ask the judge by way of motion and explain why we're entitled to a temporary restraining order because it's an extraordinary action, meaning that it's, it's quite uncommon because I want the restraining order now and I don't want to have to serve the defendant, have him hire counsel, and then have his attorney come in and have a motion hearing on it that way because by then the car could be gone. So I'm looking for what's called an ex-party action. Ex-party means that one party's doing it without the other party there. And the courts say you can do that if it's 
such that there's going to be irreparable injury, time is of the essence, and, and so on. And so there are situations where you can demonstrate to the court that we have an immediate issue here. And by the way, issuing the order is not going to hurt anybody, at least not in this case. So I had to draft a complaint. The law says if you're asking for a TRO based on a complaint, the complaint's got to be verified, meaning that my client has got to sign it under penalty of perjury, saying the facts in this complaint are true. Otherwise, you can get a TRO based on allegations in a complaint. Allegations in a complaint aren't sworn in that that manner. So I have a verified complaint. My client signs it. Now, if I drive to Port Huron to file the complaint, it gets assigned to a judge. I then know which judge I'm going to be asking for the TRO. But you ask the TRO by way of a written motion. I don't know who the judge is going to be yet. So before I drive to Port Huron, I've got to draft the verified complaint and prepare it for filing. I've got to prepare the summonses for which the complaint will be served. Then I've got to prepare the motion asking for the TRO. And I've got to prepare a proposed order. Because generally speaking, in many Michigan courts, if you ask the court for relief and the court grants it, they'll often say prepare an order and the court will sign it. So I've got to walk into that courthouse with the verified complaint, the summonses, the motion, and a proposed order, temporary restraining order. Now, if you get a TRO in Michigan in a state court, the TRO doesn't last forever because it is temporary. So what happens is the court will say, we're going to grant you this TRO, but there's going to be a hearing forthwith where we'll ask the parties to show up in court to hash out whether or not this TRO should be turned permanent or removed or what should happen. So they call it a show cause hearing. So I got to prepare the complaint, the summonses, the motion, the proposed order, and the notice of the show cause hearing. I don't know when the show cause hearing is going to be, so I got to leave those things blank. I don't know what judge my motion will be heard by, so I can't prepare the precipi or any of the notices of hearing or anything like that. But then again, there's not going to be a hearing on this. But I got to have all this stuff prepared, piles of copies of this. And I go to the court clerk in Port Huron. So I drive to Port Huron. I got to do this myself. I can't have a clerk do it because what if something goes wrong? So I drive all the way to Port Huron, go to the clerk's office, file the complaint. The complaint gets assigned to a judge. I now know which judge has the case. I then take the complaints and all my other stuff up to the judge's chambers and I find the judge's clerk. And I say, I just filed a lawsuit. A verified complaint was assigned to your judge and I have a request for a temporary restraining order. Here is the motion. It's ex party, obviously. Here's a proposed order. And here is a notice for show cause should this get granted. The clerk goes, thank you very much. Have a seat. I sit down. Now, I'm not sure if the judge is going to call me out into open court and have me put something on the record, or the judge can simply look at all my pleadings and decide whether or not to grant what I've asked. And all we're asking for was an order to keep the defendant from disposing of the vehicle until we resolve the issue of whether or not my client had a lien on the title and whether he had a claim to take the car back if he wasn't paid or force this guy to pay or do something. But the point is, we don't want the car disappearing. That's not that serious of a thing compared to the things that people often go to court for. So in the case out of Wisconsin, somebody went to court and said a bunch of employees of this hospital have left to go to another hospital. We want an injunction stopping them from doing that. 
those people all were faced with a decision. Do we violate a court order or do we go back to the place we just quit and work? And that's messing with people's livelihoods. Here, we're fighting over, ostensibly, a $3,500 car. Now, the car was worth more than that. The car was worth more than that. But, but, on paper, it would look like we're fighting over $3,500. Now, you might ask, why are you in circuit court? Why aren't you in district court? District court has jurisdiction on lower-level claims like that. Well, because we're looking for extraordinary relief. We're looking for to take back that car. We're looking for the right to take back that car. So if we take back that car pursuant to court order, that would be equitable in nature, and equity always happens in circuit courts in Michigan. So I have all this stuff. I bring it up to court. Then I take it up to court clerk for the judge. And the clerk comes walking out, and he goes, here you go. Judge granted your motion. Uh, there's a date here for a show cause, which is only a few days away. He goes, so you've got to get this stuff served on the defendant ASAP, and you got to serve him a copy of the verified complaint the summons, the TRO, and the show cause notice. And by the way, none of this is effective until the defendant is served. So this guy could sell that car while I'm at the courthouse and we'd be out of luck. And I had a process server at that time, and I called him and said, I'm going to get a TRO injunction, blah, 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 blah. Can you serve somebody in Port Huron for me? He said, yes. I raced over and met him, gave him all the paperwork, all the information who to serve, and he got that guy served, I believe, that afternoon. And then shortly after, we got contacted by an attorney. We went to court on that one hearing. Uh, and the judge, I believe, ruled at that hearing the way that was overturned by the Court of Appeals. I could be wrong on that. There may have been two hearings, but I vividly remember one hearing where, like I said, I come into court. I'm looking around. I don't see anybody who's obviously an attorney. Judge walks out, calls our case. I stand up, and a guy in the back stands up wearing, like I said, the polo and the dockers. Hey, Judge, sorry about the outfit. I just came, I just came from the boat. Oh, hey, how is the boat? Get up here, you old scamp. You know, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. So that's the case wherein I got the TRO, temporary restraining order. And of course, procedurally, for those of you following along, I went to court, got all the paperwork done. Got the guy served. We came into court, and the judge ruled kind of against us. He said, well, you've got a security interest, but only for 500 bucks, so it's extinguished. He then basically ruled in their favor and said the, the, the security interest is extinguished. And so we filed an appeal, and the appeal got heard, and the Court of Appeals spun this around and said, no, no, that's not how it works. So this unfortunately took quite some time. And when I printed out the case, I did not print out all of the information on when the opinion came down, and I forgot how long it was. But I believe it was about two years from the filing of the lawsuit to the Court of Appeals ruling in our favor. And when this opinion came down, the defendant just coughed up the money and, and, and paid the rest of it. Um, it was a lot of work for not a lot of result. But... But I learned a lot and uh, did a lot of stuff. And I think that's the only time I've ever done that myself where I've gone through the entire process of, of, of verified complaint, temporary restraining order, show cause hearing, all that stuff. I've helped people with this stuff a little bit before and after. Uh, but the funny thing I'm going to tell you is that after the case came down, it got reported. 
And by reported, I mean there are organizations out there that track cases that get handled by courts and get issued by courts, the opinions. And so you can find these books of laws in law libraries in the old days. So these books here contain the laws themselves, but you'll find other books that contain the cases. And because Article 9 cases in Michigan in particular are, are so unusual that this case got picked up and put in a bunch of different places, including UCC reporters. There's, there's a company that, that finds all the cases involving the UCC and reports those. And for the next few years, every few months, I get a phone call from somebody. And they go, hey, Steve, I got a question for you. I'm an attorney. Uh, and as a you know, courtesy, I'll jump on the phone call anytime an attorney calls me. And so an attorney calls me and goes, hey, Steve, I got a question for you. What's that? And they go, uh, Article 9. And I know they're calling me about this case. And the funny thing is that this case hinged entirely on whether or not you had a valid security interest in a car when you put your name on the title as lien holder as you sold the car to the buyer. That was basically it. Although my client also had a piece of paper that said it's a $3,500 debt. And I believe the defendant signed that also. But there's no question that I was basing it on the existence of two documents. And the question was, did they have to be the same document or could they be separate documents? And the UCC didn't speci- you know, specifically say that. It said you had to have an agreement, an agreement that contained these elements. And my argument was an agreement can be on two pieces of paper. And their position was, no, an agreement's got to be a single thing, which the UCC doesn't say that. But I'd get all kinds of other questions about all kinds of other tangents because people assumed I was suddenly an expert on the UCC Article 9. (laughs) I wasn't. I was an expert on Section 9, Sub 203. Okay, so if you want to know about 201, 202, no. 204, no. 203, yeah, we can talk about that all day long. So there you go. That's a TRO I got. That's a long video. I apologize. I hope it made sense. Questions or comments, put them below. Otherwise, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. Most people work just hard enough not to get fired and get paid just enough money not to quit.